Well, good morning. I want to thank you for rolling out the red carpet for us here today. <laughs> you know, in the 17 years of relationship that we have had, I think uh, we have become <laughs> experts at awkward social situations. I think uh, especially of that time that I totally unthinkingly smacked Chris Shannon on the backside, which was totally inappropriate. And I knew at that moment that she would love me for the rest of her life. But it was still inappropriate. So there's like a list of totally crazy things that have happened, and this makes the top five, I think. I... Uh, I'm going to preach half of the sermon that I prepared because we're cold. And so I'm going to handle uh, verse 7 of the Beatitudes. I've asked a bunch of you lately and you've asked me lately, how are you doing? And just maybe a show of hands. When was the, la you know, when, <laughs> when was the last time you heard someone say, uh, I'm doing great? <laughs> you know, a lot of people are struggling now. Um, I'm not doing great. And uh, I think the Beatitudes can help us. There are sections of scripture like the Beatitudes, like Psalm 23, like the fruit of the spirit and things like this. Uh, parts of the Bible that we can go to for help when we're not doing great. And so I'm grateful that Mike and the elders have led us to this section of the Beatitudes Let's consider verse 7 today. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. First of all, what is mercy? Mercy is more than just withholding punishment. You can imagine maybe the way that we use the word in English, like, oh, have mercy on me. That kind of a thing is how we might use it in English. But in the Bible, the word mercy has to do with helping people in need, particularly like if someone's stuck in some way that you might help them, uh, you might rescue them. And, and Jesus is the Bible's main distributor of mercy. He's the primary mercy giver. You remember his speech at the beginning of his ministry? This was in Luke chapter 4. So early in the Gospels, right toward the beginning of what he was doing in his public ministry, uh, Luke chapter 4, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. Now here's the mercy part. Here's the mercy part. He has anointed me to proclaim good news, said Jesus, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's the definition of mercy. Jesus is the walking, talking, living, breathing example of mercy. But the idea of mercy, the biblical theme of mercy goes way back. So we think 
a big example of mercy in the Old Testament. Let's consider the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this box. It was a wood box covered with gold. And the lid of that box was called the mercy seat. And that was the place where it was understood that, that God lived. His visible manifestation on earth was, was, was there on the mercy seat between two gold cherubim, two huge angels. And so there was some kind of visible manifestation of God there. And in Exodus 25, 22, God says, there I will meet with you and I will speak with you. So the ark was in the Holy of Holies, this kind of like inner place of the tabernacle where no one could go except the high priest once per year. And he went in there with blood. He sacrificed a bull and he went into the Holy of Holies with blood from the bull and then he sprinkled it on that gold mercy seat. So you can imagine like over the years you have all this dried blood all over the golden lid of the ark of the covenant. And that was the place from where God spoke to his people. And the symbolism is pretty cool. God wants to live among his people. But people like me, like you, we're sinners. And our sin is really offensive. So for God to live among sinful people, the whole relationship has got to be grounded in mercy. And that mercy was made possible through blood, which represents death. Blood when it's outside a person, that's not a good thing. And blood outside a person sprinkled on this represents the dead, uh, the dead bull that made it possible for God to interact with his people. God provided that blood through animal sacrifices, but that animal blood was really limited because it's just animal blood and it represented what Jesus would eventually do on the cross. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the ultimate example of God's mercy, the one who makes it possible, the place from which, the individual from whom we interact with God, we have a relationship with God. He died in our place, and he made it possible for God to live inside us and among us as God's people. If Les were here, he would have said amen to that. God's mercy... God's mercy comes from two attributes of God, his justice and his love. Let's consider both of those. First of all, God's justice. God cannot simply overlook sin. So you might say, why can't God just forgive us? Like sometimes we forgive each other. You know, you're rude to each other. Let's say, I don't know, totally crazy example. You're in a hotel and everybody's late and you're trying to rush to church in the morning. And so... <laughs> People might sin against each other. So, you know, when you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I was in a bad mood or something like that, then we say, that's okay. And you don't have to kill somebody in order for that forgiveness to happen. So why can't God just do that? Why can't he just forgive us? Why can't he say, that's all right, buddy, in the same way that we do to each other? But we ask that question because we don't recognize how nasty sin is in terms of our relationship with God. Other people's sin is nasty. We can, we can feel a tremendous amount of offense toward other people's sin. And we can, we, can, we can define it and explain it in great detail, other people's sin, but not mine. I mean, we, we can even make some of our sins look pretty respectable. 
We complain about things. We speak poorly about other Christians. We rebel against earthly authorities and we ignore the poor and it doesn't really seem that bad. And so with all this minimizing, we think, well, why can't, just, why can't God just forgive me and overlook it? And, but in reality, sin is a rejection of God. It's a rejection of God's ways, God's spirit, God's word, God's truth. What I want to do is more important, and so I commit divine treason for the same basic reason that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And since God is just, since justice is, is a primary attribute of God, he can't just overlook it. If somebody murders your child, you don't say, ah, oh, that's all right. No, you might forgive that person. You might grow to even love that person, but you still want to see that person go to prison. And that's, that's a correct thought. Someone needs to be punished for that kind of a sin because justice is good. And that's what makes mercy so interesting. You have someone deserving punishment, but God loves us and provides a way for someone else to suffer that punishment. Which is why Jesus was born, which is what we're celebrating during Advent here. It's why he died. It's why he rose again. It's why it makes sense to put our trust in him to lay hold of the blood-sprinkled mercy seat so that we can commune with our Father Creator. I'd like to look here at a paragraph from Hebrews chapter 9. If you have easy access, you can look at it. Otherwise, I'll read it because I know you're, you've got mittens on and so forth. Hebrews chapter 9, uh, the writer of Hebrews explains how the Old Testament fits with Christ in this sense. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. <laughs> For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Okay, so he's describing the temple that I talked about earlier that Jews used under the Old Testament law. And he goes on, behind the second curtain, there was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it, above the mercy seat, above the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, were the cherubim. Cherubim are a particular kind of angel. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So the writer is obviously explaining how the Old Testament worked and how the sacrificial system worked. He's talking about Exodus 25. He's talking about Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, that the mercy seat would be sprinkled with blood. And now he's going to make a connection to all of that with Christ. In verse eight, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. And, okay, because only the priest could go in there once a year. This is the holy place where God was speaking with his people. And you can't go in there in the Old Testament. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way of the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Okay, so in other words, normal people like us 
can't go into God's presence because we're sinners and a holy God cannot dwell with a sinful people. The way into the holy places is not yet open, but then he continues. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, yeah, it makes you clean in a sense. The, the blood of these animals made you clean in a sense, but it doesn't perfect the conscience. It doesn't give you a deep cleaning in the, in the way that the blood of Jesus Christ eventually would. Cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. In other, okay, in other words, the Old Testament didn't actually make a person deeply clean. God was simply patient until he calls it the time of reformation. That is the time of Christ. And then verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through uh, the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. His blood was massively more powerful than the blood of goats and bulls. It, had a, it has a divine quality to it. It has an eternal quality to it. It has an all-powerful quality to it. And verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, our whole persons from dead works to serve the living God. So that was from Hebrews chapter 9. And so mercy is woven into the fabric of the entire Bible, Old Testament through New Testament from end to end. God spoke from the mercy seat. He sprinkled it with blood and we interact with God through the blood of another. Thank God it is through Christ's blood. And so we are able to interact with God. And mercy is the purpose of the ministry of Christ. Thomas Hooker, he was a Puritan and one of the co-founders of Connecticut, and he was on his deathbed, and somebody said to him, brother, you are going to receive the reward of your labors. And Thomas Hooker replied by saying, no, friend, I'm going to receive mercy. <laughs> That's key. If you realize God's mercy toward you, then you are thrilled by it. You understand what this, what this means, that you've received mercy. And then it becomes your deathbed comfort. Which brings us back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful. You remember the parable of the ungrateful servant, this person who had been forgiven this unfathomable death, uh, debt by the king. And then somebody owed him a couple of bucks and he put the person in jail. Just a total, you don't understand what God has done for you. This incredible mercy that you have received if, when we know how merciful God has been toward us, then we are likely to think about ourselves correctly and then lavish mercy on other people. And so you think about Colossians chapter 3, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. Think about that one for a few weeks or something. Make allowance for each other's faults. 
That would be a good one to like put over a marriage bed or something like that. Make allowance for each other's faults. In other words, assume that you're living with the sinner. <laughs> okay? Great way to start a relationship with someone. Assume that you're living with someone who is going to hurt you now and then and make allowance for that. Leave some space for that in your relationship. And Colossians goes on, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. That's a must. That's a New Testament must. Above all, Paul says, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. The Puritan Richard Baxter, who I think wrote some of the best stuff on marriage in the history of the church, he said this, <laughs> this is great. Do not forget that you are both diseased persons, full of infirmities, and therefore expect the fruit of those infirmities in each other, and do not act surprised about it as if you had never known of it before. Decide to be patient with one another, remembering that you took one another as sinful, frail, imperfect persons, and not as angels or as blameless and perfect Dude was writing 300 years ago, but he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> Baxter wrote in another article he's, uh, on marriage, he said, Agree together beforehand that when one is in the diseased, angry fit, the other shall silently and gently bear till it be past and you are come to yourselves again. Be not angry both at once. When the fire is kindled, quench it with gentle words and carriage, and do not cast on oil or fuel by answering provokingly and sharply, or by multiplying words and by answering wrath with wrath. That's a great quote. Decide to be patient with one another. Decide to be patient with one another. Enter into a relationship, especially when you know we're about to talk about something hard. Go into it preparing yourself, preparing yourself that I'm about to enter a room with other sinners and talk about something hard and decide beforehand to be patient with one another. Our emotions can be controlled. Sinful and upset and hysterical emotions should be arrested and helpful emotions should be pursued. Remember, in Jonah, toward the end of Jonah, Jonah is super mad and he's sitting on the side of the hill and he's looking down at, where was it, Nineveh? And he's just super upset at these people. I can't believe God did this and so forth. And, and the literal Hebrew, uh, God asks Jonah, Jonah, is it good that it burns you? That's God's question to Jonah. Is it good that it burns you? And we ought to ask our say, ourselves the same question from time to time and in human interactions. We see someone treating us badly or we are interacting with people that are deeply needy and stuck and they need our help and we ought to assume that we are going to get bruised through this process. And we do it 
intentionally. This is what mercy is, is I am intentionally engaging someone who might scratch me or kick me or say mean things to me. I'm intentionally entering this situation because this person is stuck. Maybe they're just a a wonderfully godly person and they're in the, as Baxter says, the diseased fit. Or maybe they are stuck in their lives making chronically bad choices and we're just deciding to express love to this person. And then it's a surprise that we get hurt. All of us are oversensitive to offenses and we get too upset by conflicts. I heard a story recently of a parole officer who... uh, as he went out into the community to do his job, he's constantly receiving all this abuse. You know, people say terrible things to him and basically hated him wherever he went. And he's, how can you survive a job like this for more than a few months? And he developed this ability to just say to himself, you know, it really isn't anything to do with me that this person is upset. It's, It's not this statement on my character or something like this. And I've got to be able to engage these people and not allow their words to sink deep into my heart. We've got to have that same kind of ability to engage people when they're in the diseased fit. And some of us, you know, you might live with somebody who is regularly in the diseased fit, like out of their minds, just saying terrible things, doing terrible things. You know, you've got to come to a point where you just say, I'm going to be merciful to this person and, and not allow these terrible things to sink so deeply. I've got to be like Christ who in his expression of love toward me was willing to actually die on the cross. And he did that from choice and a position of strength. It is possible to be merciful in such a way that we too receive mercy It's possible to not only be merciful, but to find joy in the journey to receive mercy in return. You know, because when we love people, then we do get hurt. And yet if we persist in the expression of mercy and we make allowance for other people to be human beings around us who are fallen and waiting for redemption. If we make allowance for that, and if we assume that this is going to happen, we make space for that in the relationship, then their bad behavior from time to time or even regularly isn't a shock to me. And it doesn't sink deeply into me. And I'm able to understand more deeply what it is that God has done for me. And I am sustained more by God. And there's a mercy that I receive myself by living that way. (laughs) Your other choice is to just seal yourself off and only hang out with the nicest ones or to just close yourself in a room and watch TV all day where I can watch the same kind of repetitive TV show where everybody gets along or the thing is resolved at the end or so forth and I never actually have to interact with real people. But there's a great blessing to have a community that is, still exists after decades because we've worked through our problems together. <laughs> There's a mercy that we receive when we express mercy, when we live with mercy. Mercy is a choice to help people who are stuck. Mercy is when we love people who can't love us back. 
And both of these are at work when we're interacting with people, you know, in bad moods and, and people aren't in their right mind. Uh, I remember, you know, through some of our homeless ministry here years ago, we recognized at that point, I don't know where you guys are at now, but at that point, it seemed like there were a number of really solid ministries that were helping homeless people to not be homeless. And so we thought, you know, our sweet spot could be interacting with the people that aren't going to rehabilitate. And so we're going to do some kinds of ministries with just the least of these, the people that are just so deeply broken. Our goal is not necessarily rehabilitation, but it's making sure they get breakfast, that kind of a thing. I remember one day there was a guy that we interacted with many, many times, and um, he was often drunk. And I remember him telling me a story once about how he remembered the taste of beer in his own baby bottle when he was a kid. He was raised by alcoholics himself. It was just the disaster of a person. And uh, he kept getting sunburned because he was such a drunk and a disheveled person that he would lay out in the sun and he'd get these terrible sunburns. So I remember, I can't remember if it was me or less, putting uh, sunscreen on the guy that day. That was an expression of mercy to that man. You know, there's, there was received nothing in return from that person. He's terribly stuck. The dude's going to go get a sunburn unless somebody puts some sunscreen on him. So, you know, there's this spectrum between the, the person who is just mature and occasionally loses it for a, an hour or a month or whatever, all the way to people who are just so disastrous that their lives are, are a mess and, the, and we have to help them in, in, in profoundly embarrassing ways, just with basic bodily functions. I mean, throughout this entire spectrum, we have opportunities to treat people with mercy. And there is a mercy that we receive when we act like that because it strengthens communities. And again, it sinks the theology of what we've received down into our own hearts. This is what Christ did. He left the perfections of heaven and his own throne and he became a human being, looked like just any old guy. And he served us and he died on the cross for us. And that's what we do when we have mercy on others. You can feel sorry for yourself and try to protect yourself from getting hurt. And I, I'm an expert in doing that. So I'm speaking to myself as well. Or we could decide to have mercy, to understand mercy, to express mercy, and therefore to receive mercy. Let me conclude Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What awful offense have you suffered today or this week or this month or this pandemic? Will the blood of Jesus Christ be enough to satisfy you in the middle of your suffering? Will mercy be your deathbed comfort? Will it be the secret to your happy marriage? Will you allow mercy to commission you into the lives of the poor and the imprisoned and the foreign? And so, my friends, be thrilled by mercy, and you will receive it yourself and be blessed. Let me close in prayer. God in heaven, we are not, most of us, particularly good at being merciful because we get hurt and we feel sorry for ourselves and then we lash out or we seal ourselves off. And God, I pray that you would help us to grow up in our understanding of who you are and what you have done for us. And I pray that you would settle our hearts and bring us joy and peace supernaturally 
so that we can express mercy to others and so you can shower more mercy in our own lives as we follow your ways. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Long before the angels brought good news of great joy to the shepherds near Bethlehem, the prophet Zephaniah said these words, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. Today is the third Sunday of the Advent season, a time when we anticipate Christ's coming. The shepherds responded to the angel's message by glorifying and praising God. They rejoiced that they rejoiced that God's salvation was finally at hand. As we light the third candle, we rejoice in God's salvation. We celebrate the coming anniversary of the birth of Christ with great gladness. Christ came to earth to save us needy sinners. As we look forward to the time of his return to earth and the day when he will wipe every tear from our eyes, for, there, for then there will be no more death, nor mourning, or crying, or pain. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is with great joy that we praise you for the salvation you have provided for us in Christ. Jesus, whose very name means God saves, came to earth that we might be delivered from our sins. We thank you that you have redeemed us, and we long for the day when you will come to right all wrongs and bring an end to sadness and suffering. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.